Next Chapter Podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to How I Got Greenlit, a weekly podcast about pursuing your passions within and without the creative arts. I'm your host, Alex Collegian. We're back here with part two of our discussion with uh, writer-director Brad Anderson. Please go back and catch up if you're just coming into this one. There's plenty for you if you don't have time to hit uh, three keystrokes on your is that keystrokes touch tabs flip flaps on your phone if not just enjoy we got you if your hands are tied up and you're trying to chew through your bonds in a small storage facility um, near the border of uh, Argentina we got you keep chewing you'll get through you'll find the, the plans you'll return them to the uh, authorities and and be rewarded and while you do that, we'll be talking to Brad Anderson more about his career um, from indie darling to blockbuster uh, maestro and beyond. And also talk about his B list, uh, his B side, which is uh, Don't Look Now, 1973 thriller directed by Nicholas Rogue and adapted from the 1971 short story by Daphne de Maurier. It's really a portrait of a marriage after the loss of a, of a loved one. And it's the classic, the one, pa- the one partner's way of dealing with it is not dealing with it. And the other partner's way of dealing with it is to over deal with it. And the both of them are wrong and the both of them are lost. And, um, you know, they decide that like, let's get away from it all. This house reminds me of the tragedy. We're going to go, he's got a job. We go to Venice. So I've never seen Venice, Italy captured like this. We always see the same James Bond movie, spy movie, thriller movie, travel log, sometimes rom-coms. And it's always this golden light and the pigeons are flapping and the thing and the thing and the thing. And we know what we see in our mind's eye. Having been there, it is a beautiful city, but it's also decaying and sinking into the muck. And uh, you don't really see that in most of the coverages, but what they did here was interesting. They went to a tourist city in the winter, right? You see Venice, uh, it's dark, it's gray, it's it's deserted. Um, the water's gray, the sky's gray, the decaying stone is gray. You know, the uh, Donald Southern's character is an architect and he's trying to sort of prop up this, you know, old church that's just fading into dust and helping to sort of remount the gargoyles, et cetera, et cetera. So it just, it's like a haunted house, but it's a city, right? And it's kind of dead in the way that their psyches are dead. So again, you know, this location as character thing is going on, but basically it's one of those things where up until the very end, you're, you're constantly asking like, is this really happening or is this a figment of someone's imagination? You know, is this demonic? Is this ghosts? Is this aliens? Is this, uh, you know, I don't know, just the, the, the floating head of Walt Disney in a jar, um, up until like literally the last shot. Uh, it doesn't really tell you where you should set your head. And then right when it does that, there's a big moment. And then the come down, 
so it seemingly explains itself and then the come down from that like right into the roll of the credits kind of flips the script and you're like wait a second i thought they were being literal and now they're saying maybe it's there's more to than meets the eye anyway it's sort of fascinating and it, it, interesting because i can relate to it you know one of the things they postulate is that the character that's most doubtful of any sort of supernatural activity is also accused of having the power to perceive supernatural activity but is resisting it because it's not logical and it's not the kind of person they are and i i have a person like that in my life if you're listening out there and she is definitely got the the gift the shining there's something real to it she perceives things differently than most people i don't know if that's because of her something that happened to her if that's inborn i don't know where this the gift comes from but she's definitely become a scientist and a logical thinker i think to get away from that and i wouldn't do that i i think that's fine but i think that when you reach a certain age you're allowed to embrace every aspect of yourself i think a lot of what this character in the movie and a lot of what one of my very very close people in my life is going through is about denying part of yourself you know is there some grand unifying theory to why the world is such a fucking shit laden fucking horse cart right now and if i boiled it down to the observation of public and private figures that we all know either at our thanksgiving table or at you know our election cycle it's self-love and i don't mean narcissism narcissism is a sloppy mask put on top of intense self-hatred I'm talking about self-acceptance I think if we all accepted ourselves as who we are gay straight short tall you know you like fucking fish you don't like fish whatever it is everybody would just get the fuck along anyway enough of that that was somewhere between platitudes and uh, half-assed pop psychology Uh, you can send 14 cents to Walla Walla Washington to get my pamphlet about how to bullshit for fun and profit but that's I really do think that and I do equate that this character the reason that he um, has a bad time let's say it is because He refuses to acknowledge that there's something inside him that could probably be to the benefit of himself, to the benefit of his wife, and, well, even to his family, his children, whatever. But anyway, this is part two of our discussion with Brad Anderson. I'm your host, Alex Collegian, and this is how I got greenlit. Enjoy. So Machinist is a great example of, you know, I like watching Session 9 again, and I respect Machinist, but it's a, it's, it's a difficult film. I mean, it's a power, not in a bad way, I'm saying it's just so powerful. Yeah. You know what I mean? It, it ta- you don't want to watch it again next year. You want to give it maybe every 10 years and re-examine it. I mean, that's certainly, <laughs> no, for real. I mean, it yeah, is, it's I, just, it's, it's, a, it's a heady brew, as I they used to them. say, you know, like, you can it, it it takes it it takes a toll on the viewer and and that was the intention so i mean i imagine um i mean yeah you don't want it wasn't made as a movie that one can just delicate you know kind of breezily like watch on the background like yeah. it demands yeah. its yeah. attention I mean, I, ideally you know if 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 if, I, if these movies are the ones that we're talking about can live with you like a residue you know yeah. and like almost like to me, I think I've a, that that would be a little bit of an accomplishment. Like, because it's so often now that you see even a good movie, even a, and and you just because usually you're sitting on your couch watching it at home, and you watch it, and the credits start to roll. And before you can watch the credits, it's already going on to the next. I like, fucking thing hate or, that. Oh, do you want to watch this other thing? No, no, no. Yeah. And you don't digest it, or you don't have the time to just dwell on it, 
or let it live with you. And I, I and that's part of what, like when you used to go to the cinema, you, the lights would go out or the lights would, the, the movie would end, the lights would stay dark. You'd sort of sit in your seat digesting it a little bit, you know what I mean? And then you'd kind of quietly walk out with everyone and you walk to your car or whatever. And they, then you start to talk about the movie because that's what you did. And like on the car ride home, you talk about it and you had lived with it. And now it's just like, click it off and move on to the next thing. And there's a little time to process. So I think a movie like, say, The Machinist or Session 9 and a few others I've done are like those kind of movies that ideally can live with you, whether it's you trying to figure out what happened or you just trying to kind of deal with like whatever the emotional like thing that it gives you. Like, I think that's a cool thing to aim for in a movie. And it's hard to achieve that and not in any movie. Um, but I think the darker, more suspenseful movies like, like, like those ones tend to be more, they tend to live with you a bit more because they just, they get under the skin, you know, they get under your skin. Trevor, can I ask you something? Is someone chasing you? Not yet, but they will when they find out who I am. Oh, really? Why am And you, uh, unlike many of your films, you did not write that. That was a script that you developed or came to you, or what was the sort of genesis of that project? That was the first one I didn't yeah. write. Yeah, that, that was written by Scott Kosar, who, uh, and it was brought to me because actually the, um, and I was interested in doing someone else's script. I hadn't done one before. Everything up to that point I had written myself. Um, but Scott's script seemed very much in tune with my own thinking, so we kind of collaborated. And um and we made we tried to get the movie made here in the states uh the machinist um and christian bale had got attached to that stage but he wasn't at the level he hadn't done batman yet so he had done american psycho but he wasn't he was considered still like a bit of a unknown quantity but he loved it and attached himself we ultimately got the financing in spain from a spanish company and uh because i was the only place who would give us the money to make it but their condition was we had to shoot it in barcelona so we're like, hmm, that's weird. Set in like some weird Los Angeles type reality, but maybe we can do it. And right, like an unnamed city. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. And what it became was that it became, in fact, Barcelona turned out to be kind of perfect because in shooting there, we were forced to make it as generic a city as possible. You know, we had to put in signs that had English writing on them and they looked kind of generic and fake. And in some weird way that adds to the, lo the whole kind of fever dream nature of the film. Um, cause I think some people watch it, they, they don't know where it's shot. It just has like a weird world. Exactly. To it. Um, You're not like, Oh, it's Cleveland. Like where the fuck are they? Like, yeah. 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 Is it LA? Is it like, right. is it, where is it? You yeah. Know, so yeah. It has a weird sensibility to it, which I think helps the movie and the, and the vibe of it. But anyhow, that film, um, and, uh, and that movie, uh, established my relationship with the company that made it Filmax, And I, I made my next film with them too. So, that you know i think with each movie you make it you know often can it can it can sort of uh step you into other relationships that help you make an actor uh, a film yeah yeah right you, whether it's where you work with an actor again and again or you work with a producer who really loves your stuff and you kind of develop those relationships that's always a really good way to keep the keep the ball rolling yeah, DPs. You kind of see these director yeah. runs where they, they they lock in with a John right. Kaminsky, and then the next thing you know, they're doing right. their next eight films. There's just something that just clicks or whatever, Ballhouse, whatever. So, um, I mean, that feels like it was a it was it was you and and Christian Bale. It was like a meeting of the minds, and what are we doing here? And you know. Did, tell me, was that process unique with him? Was it just like any other actor just kind of finding a way? I mean, it just seems like that's a modern example of the, like maybe do the raging bull transformation, right? Like you see that as this, this dramatic, like undeniable uh, level, level of, of commitment, right? You know? Yeah. Well, that, that's, but that's. And what, that's, what, what did you see? Like when you, when he walked in, were you like, holy shit, dude, I, I, I thought you were going to do like 20 pounds. Like what's up? No, but he didn't, he didn't, uh, I didn't tell him to lose any weight. I, I mean, the character was written as a, like, scarecrow, human walking skeleton. So it was kind of, 
being eaten alive by his guild, if you will. Mm -hmm. So he read that and took it literally. And right. I, I, I think I maybe, you know, I, I assumed he would lose a little weight, whatever, but he was already kind of a lanky dude. Right? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Like, so, but when he, yeah, then he shows up like literally a walking skeleton and everyone was like, Whoa, but he, he but he, but like, he's that kind of actor that he has to, you know, this has been said by anyone who's worked with him. He just immerses himself in the roles. Like I just watched vice again. <laughs> and it's like you cannot yeah dude well that, that looks like he becomes the character right? but even like american psycho he was that like sleek right. sexy fucking thing like it's just he that's right. his wardrobe is his body right yeah and he and he's so good at it and and so working with him was a pleasure despite the fact that for him personally it probably was not pleasant because he was uncomfortable yeah you're in barcelona the most Best cuisine in the world, and you can't even. <laughs> it was like torture. I didn't even think uh, of that. That's right. No paella for you. <laughs> uh, that's funny. But no, yeah. he was, Christian's great. He was a lovely a guy to work with, and I feel you know, uh, um, you know, privileged to have had to work with him. Right after that, he did Batman, and his career took off, and he's been taking off ever since. I mean, he's look, American Psycho has a special little kind of place, in, I think pop culture. And, uh, but, oh, yeah, totally. But I think machinists like really showed people like this guy is a force. Like it's not a, it, it's not like, oh, it was Brett Easton Ellis and he just did the funny fucking shtick. Like, no, this guy's like to be reckoned with and, and, and that's where they went, you know? But, uh, yeah, man, I mean, that's got to be a moment when you're like, oh, fuck, is this guy okay? Am, you know, am I going to have to like, did I, did I, did I hint that I wanted this? Like Jesus Christ, make sure this guy gets a you know saline solution or whatever, right? Yeah, I mean, he, he he knows how to he he knew how to take care. His wife was there. He 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 was very conscious of health issues. Like he wasn't doing anything ra too radical, yeah. at least in his mind. So yeah. So, but he's also just good at playing. You know, even if he hadn't lost the weight, you know, it, he would have. It would have been great. I think the movie was still been good. It's not. It's not the only thing to remember from that film. You know, definitely put put a spotlight on y'all. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that poster. I mean, it's just fucking haunting. But uh, um, and then Jennifer Jason Lee. Like, tell me what what that relation working with her. What Lovely. Was that like? I'd always loved her. Yeah. And uh, always wanted to just that chance to work with her was great. She's just great. She's just a sweetheart. And are you still improving now in a script that you didn't write? Are you still? Is it looser? Is it tighter? What? Do you this is no. This script was more tight. It wasn't. It was a. It wasn't very. It wasn't about the dialogue as much. Anyhow, either. And uh, so this was not one that we did. I, I that we took that route, and that's one of the reasons I wanted to do something more uh, composed and and thought out and a little less loose around the edges and, and, um, and even just the way we shot it, like it just wasn't handheld camera. It was very thought out. And, and, um, and so it was more, it was a more formalistic kind of approach, which I do that. And I go back and forth in the movies, like just, you know, in terms of just style, you know, I mean, Beirut was all handheld and rough and raw and this one wasn't. And then, and then, you know, it depends on the movie and just whatever is of interest to me at the time. But, but so, yeah, visually we tried to do something or I tried to capture a different vibe for the movie. Um, yeah. Based on the aesthetic of the, what, what is the content of the, of the script dictates the style, not I'm right. going to make it right. a Hitchcock movie with this kind of shot and, you know, whatever Michael Curtiz, we're going to push in at this scene and whatever the fuck. Yeah. So no, I totally, I get that. And, and I respect that, especially when you're dealing with a script from somebody else, you trying to, well, Hey, this brought me in, this brought the actors and let's make sure that we don't um, meddle with it too right. much. Right. So, uh, and then of course, exactly. Michael Ironside, the, the man, the myth, the legend, <laughs> Like there's another guy, right? That's sort of. Well, like, he's like you're, the actor you were talking about. Just, he's one of those seasoned guys. Been been in the business for everything. Done everything. Again, like TV nothing movies. like his characters that he plays. No, like a total, a total like sweetheart. You know? Yeah, it's like funny. I find that actors who play sluggish characters tend to be like themselves, rather nice and friendly, and enjoy to be around. Yeah. And sometimes it's the opposite. You know, yeah, the, the guys nice guys, like the right? Sweethearts are assholes. <laughs> 
exactly, exactly. And so you, so, yeah, he was great. Yeah, so then you did, uh, you continued your relationship with Filmax and and went into Trans Siberian, yeah. So my next movie was was Trans Siberian, which I wrote with my a friend, and that was um, a, again a totally different kind of movie. I wanted to do something on a train. I'd always loved train movies, going back to like Strangers on a Train, and and. Uh, and I, had, when I was younger, after college, I did a lot of traveling. I backpacked through Asia on my own and up through India and up to China and then took the Trans-Siberian Railroad, which goes from Beijing all the way across to Moscow. And I, I had studied Russian in college. So it was like a really great experience for me. And I, seven days on that train, non, I mean, I got off once, but basically you're on it in a little berth for like seven days, meeting all sorts of other interesting characters as you go down as you travel and so it always struck me like what a cool like i sort of contained world to create a little suspense thriller and so trans-siberian evolved out of that experience and so i wrote it with my friend and um and filmax company that had financed uh the machinist uh jumped on board so i was thrilled and we made that movie in um in lithuania and um and got a pretty good cast: Ben Kingsley, Woody Harrelson, Emily Mortimer. Yeah, uh, and I mean, all ki- all killers. Those guys, all those actors are killers. Yeah, I mean, they're all great. Yeah. I mean, you know, and Ben Kingsley is someone I've worked with a couple of times. Um, yeah, I saw that. What? Tell me about him. Great guy, you know, like amazing, like you know, Oscar winner, pro, super seasoned pro, and. And and also really like one of those guys who listens. He's not like one of those actors who doesn't. You can just say, "I'm doing it this way, no matter what," right? Because there are those guys who get to that point where they don't need to have you tell them how they're going to do it. And he's like, "Tell me what you want." He he wants to be directed. He wants he wants you to. He wants to be directed. Yeah, which is great. Right. Yeah, it's great for both. He of wants you. you to direct yeah. him, and like, and he appreciates your feedback, and he appreciates your ideas, and he tries to and does implement them in the best way so and a lovely guy to work with um but yeah that trans-siberian was uh the movie i did after the machinist and um and you know again trying to do something totally different the machinists in that movie are very different you know even in how they look in their tone um but also keeping in that sort of darker world of movies about characters who are suffering from guilt (laughs) Which also, I guess, looking back at my career, if I were looking back, even the comedies, there's a lot of guilt. <laughs> it was always guilt. The best com- the best, the best comedies are about about yeah, people guilty Suffering, of something, yeah. infidelity, whatever. But but I but I find that like, you know, not to analyze my own films, but I think a lot of them do have um, that do dwell on on characters who are suffering or atoning for some sort of guilty conscience. And, uh, and this one certainly with Emily Mortimer's character. Um, and so I, and I, it's just a theme that's, that's cropped up in a number of my projects. I'm not sure why. I don't think I'm particularly guilty of anything. At least I hope not. But, uh, but yeah, I I like those kind of stories. It's also a real shout out to Hitchcock and, you know, I've always loved his movies and, um, you know, great suspense, you know, Again, the location's a character, right? The train's like the hospital. The, the, the remote Siberia is like, you know, you can't, there's nowhere to run. You can't escape. You're basically, you're in a prison on wheels. And there's just these tiny figures trapped. You're not trapped in a little hospital. You're trapped in a <laughs> large landscape. And in either way, you can't escape, right? Exactly. Um, I'm, right. Are you a rehearsal guy? Yeah, I mean, not not like militant about it, but I do like to do rehearsals. If anything, just to kind of warm up the actors and if they have any questions, and, but not like try to nail it perfectly. It's more just like getting the wheels greased. But I like to I like the spontaneity of sometimes hearing it on the set for the first time, and I think some actors do too. Some actors really love to rehearse; many don't. Um, depends on the project too. If it's a movie where it's really a lot of technical dialogue, that's very whatever has to explain stuff and expository it's it's good to rehearse sometimes because it's just about making sure you get the beats um but also i like as i said just having actors sometimes show up and go and i mean you look at some of the 
great filmmakers of our era. And a lot of them were like that. I mean, you know, Hitchcock never rehearsed. I don't think like people would show up. Clint Eastwood doesn't rehearse. <laughs> Woody, 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 uh, never rehearsed. I mean, Woody Allen never rehearsed. Uh, that's why, that's why I asked. There's no rules. Like I'm not, I'm not advocating one way or another. It's just when I think of such a disparate cast, I mean, uh, uh, Woody Harrelson, you know, and I don't know him. I haven't worked with him, but in in my mind's eye, he seems like an intuitive guy. Like he just has this talent and it comes through and he sort of follows some sort of internal uh, guidance system. Whereas like a Ben Kingsley, I'm imagining the training and the theater and the, the elocution and the, do you know what I mean? So you got these two radically different, just people, like I'm sure just having dinner with them, it's fucking bizarre, but then the styles and the influences and the cultures of theater and acting and film. And you know what I mean? Like, where does that go? Is that in the rehearsal? You're like, Hey man, you know, Woody's, Woody's more of a find it guy. And you know, there's there is a there is a, a a logic to putting those people together in a room before you put them before a camera to work out any of those kinks. But again, sometimes the kinks and the disconnect work on film. You know, uh, like yes, especially right when they're at odds on screen. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Right, if you have like Woody who's like improvising or playing around and taking a loopy way of a delivery, and then you have a Ben Kingsley who's like very precise. And they're like, and they're like loggerheads. Like sometimes you get great stuff. Sometimes you get people who are like, "What the fuck is he doing? Why is he doing it like that?" But, but I think that it's what you do as a director to a certain degree. You're you're managing people and personalities both on and off set to a certain degree. You, and that's how you try to fashion a performance. Sometimes is like maybe you know without being like you know, uh, not exploiting the situation, but sometimes you can put people together in a way that elicits a performance that might not have been there if you had over rehearsed it. Mm -hmm. You know, I know that Kubrick did a lot of that to the, to his, to the, to the detriment of some of the actors. Yeah. The manipulation situations to try to manipulate people. I did never done that. I, yeah. I find that to be really, that's bullshit to me. It's like, you're not, you know, you're just making a fucking movie like everyone, but sometimes you can subtly, steer the ship, you know, that way. It's always fascinating. The other thing that, that I'm always curious about is uh, further to the disparate styles of your performance of your performers is, you know, sometimes people say actors are a take three person, a take, take one, like for example, the spontaneity, like maybe just comes out instantly what you want. And you're like, okay, fuck it. You know, uh, or it's take 17 or whatever. Like, do you do a lot of takes? And if so, like if, if a Ben Kingsley is a take one, like, perfection and Woody needs like five to, and I'm just throwing this out there as a, you know, concept, but you know, uh, is a five take like revving the engine up guy. Like how do you get what you want? Are you shooting two cameras? Are you just hoping that the film gods are on your side? Like what happens? Well, I think that, that, that is, that is one of the challenges that can be a challenge. Um, but most actors are fairly, gracious people and let's say uh ben kingsley nails it in take one and woody needs six takes i'm not saying that might be the opposite but let's say that's what it is you know most nine times out of ten the ben kingsley's of the world will like just go through yeah. it to get, get them there because it's a team effort yeah to get them there it's like they're, they're working as a team hopefully i mean that's ideally what it is and i think as a director you're trying to be part of that collaboration as well and and um but you know some of it's also just like you know, but you're right. Some actors just come out of the gate and deliver. And then after that, it's a diminishing returns. Other actors really need to build up to it. And it's interesting to find as you work with people to kind of understand what their process is, because then it guides how you cover a scene. like And how you schedule a day even, right? Yeah. So it, it's a very, it, it's a, it's one of the more kind of like interesting strategic parts of the job is like, how you cover a scene. If you're not doing everything in one big master, for instance, like, you know, and I don't have tended to do that in my films, but you know, how do you cover a scene? And, it, and it's driven by how the actors, how you think the actors are going to be put in a best position to deliver their best performance. But I think, but I think in general, like I'm not one of those Kubrick guys who does 50 takes and I don't ever understood why he did 50 takes. <laughs> I mean, I talked to Vince D'Onofrio who worked with him on Full Metal Jacket and he said like literally 
60 takes and every take was exactly the same and he never gave notes. He'd just say, do it again, do it again, do it again. And part of it, I think, was wearing the actors down to the point where they get that weird, like Kubrickian, like flat sort of like flat affected sort of thing. It's like they're so exhausted by the end of it that they're just like, "What? I'll just say the line." And maybe it's like a brain dead. Yes, like a like a faraway stare. Like, okay, here is the lines that you asked yeah, me the for. Yeah, stare yeah. came out of that. Yeah, movie. I'm so tired, man. I, but I, but I think that you know. But that I don't know. I mean, I, that's it that doesn't seem like there's much uh, uh, to be gained from shooting that many takes, unless it's a technical thing and they have to nail it. And then you hear about people like, you know, like the Clint Eastwoods of the world or the Woody Allens, and they literally do like one take, you know, and good rap, yeah. moving on, you know. It's like okay, <laughs> yeah. It's it's look. I mean, that's the magic of like uh, there isn't any one formula or any, even this show like. There's never this, none of these stories are the same. Hope you're digging the talk so far. I certainly am. I hate to interrupt, but I want to tell you about something, friends. Something that, let's say you're on a, I don't know, ice truck haul from Anchorage to fucking Seattle. Need to kill some time. Here's the good news. The How I Got Greenlit Archive. It's where we keep everything. And I mean everything that we've ever recorded here. Every interview, every chit chat, every aside. In this case, this is one of my favorite interviews. Check out a little highlight that we have. Uh, We were talking to esteemed production designer, Paul Rice. You're going to love this. Check it out. You need a bit of like of you need a bit of constriction. You need a bit of container to even even if you fight against it. Because if you're like sometimes if you're given full reign, you can go you can kind of get lost in the alleys, you know, in that way. Um, I think I think uh, we've uh, seen it many times before. Yes, I mean I think that's for me that's a role of a good producer it is is sharing the same vision as the director. Have but like shielding, but also you know, kind of the bumper, like if you were, you know, like in in a in bowling, like the bumper bowling, like a little bit yeah, of yeah, yeah, defining defining the parameters that they can be creative within. It can't just Correct. be free range. Yeah, Correct. yeah. Thank you, Paul. That was a lot of fun. If you dug that, uh, there's many more where that came from. Just go to howigotgreenlit.com. And you'll find the entire archive of all of our seasons and specials and roundtables and long form interviews and B-side love. Check it out. Howigotgreenlit.com. Check out the archive. We're waiting for you there. Operators are standing by. But meanwhile, back to our conversation with Brad Anderson and his B-side movie that he brought, Nicholas Rogues. Don't look now. Thank you. I do want to get to Beirut and your other films, but I think chronologically, this is a really interesting point for you specifically and the business in general, which is as the indies of the 90s started to maybe get more stratified into the machine and less sort of this like sparkly, fizzy, like new thing, uh, the rise of like quality television was sort of happening at the same time. You talked about the wire and stuff like that. And it was like, um, you know, people think it just happened in a vacuum and that's not what happened. What happened was, is that people like you, the filmmakers of the, of the indie nineties were coming of age and needed to work. So where was the work? Well, it's TV. Well, you don't want to do Columbo. You don't want to just whatever. It just so happened that interesting voices, writers, directors, producers, even the actors, um, that's why the quality got better is they had these incredible award-winning people like yourself who uh, are coming at television like a film or like, you know, art as opposed to just like, hey, I'm gigging on Magnum PI or whatever, which is fine. I like Magnum PI. I watched the shit out of all those kind of shows of the, of the, of the early, you know, that, those, those times. But there's a reason. It's not just, oh, it just happened. It was, yeah, David Simon could call upon a guy like you to elevate a television show, right? So it's kind of fascinating that um, 
TV really came into your career in a big way at this time, right? I think for all filmmakers, like who started in that indie world, or not all, but many, um, you know, as moved on to, and and can do television and films simultaneously, and you know, it, and you know, if you're doing good shows like say The Wire or whatever, um, you know, you feel like you're flexing that same muscle, you know, on someone else's dime, you know, and and you know, it's you get to work with multiple different kinds of actors and DPs and producers and different places. I mean, I've shot more television than I have film. Ultimately, I've been all over the world shooting television. And it's such a, it's like, it gives you the chance to do things you might not have done in your career, at least my career, where most of my films are more are smaller, more personal kind of movies. So I think it's great sometimes. And I've done both. I've done quality stuff, like, but I've also done the Magnum PI type shows because you do well because yeah you got a mortgage you got kids like you said yeah yeah so like and i'm not shitting on let me let me clarify like i i would call magnum pa a popcorn television show like there, there's a place for everything right but you're this iconoclastic guy i mean you, you don't have a reputation for being a difficult iconoclast but you are a specific flavor let's call it as a director so uh what's that first moment you step onto someone else's set let's call it you know uh whoever's hosting you let's say it's david simon or one of these other uh showrunners right and the sort of rise of that whole paradigm that we know so well now uh are you intimidated are you given a little more leeway in those early days or are they like the crew knows everything the cast knows everything don't fuck it up you know my first television gig was an episode of the show called Homicide Life on the Street. Sure. Which is also David Simon's thing yeah. in Baltimore. And a lot of directors like Lodge Kerrigan and those people like Mary Heron. I think yeah, all, the all, that, all the indie guys. Yeah, yeah. You know, it, was, it was like a stable of indie directors who went in there and, and did episodes as a way to kind of learn the ropes about television because none of us had done TV before. Mm -hmm. And it was, but it was, it was a forgiving kind of world. It was all shot in 16 millimeter handheld. Yeah. So it was like, Hey, I know this. It, it, so is it, it that you know how to shoot fast, shoot 16 handheld, like run and gun and your schedules are truncated? Is that, yeah. is that the, yeah. That's exactly why they hired all these because they didn't have to pay them much and they could get that same passion and, and sort of talent hopefully. And so, yeah, that was my first. And then after that, I did, I started to move, I did The Wire, which is also David Simon's, and I was starting to do other television and more straightforward network stuff as well. But yeah, at first it's like, you go in and it's a different world than it is on a film set. And as you said, it's like, it's, it's a whole machine that's moving forward. You're just one little cog in the machine. And so you got to kind of go with the flow a little bit. You can't be a prima donna. You're not going to last very long if you are. So you learn how to be, how to make compromises and how to be, how to work a set. And it's actually great training, if you will. And also allows you to do some good stuff. So I really enjoyed that mix. And then when I was able to do my movies, I could do my own thing, my own way, whatever, right? Right. So again, muscles, different muscles. Yeah. Right. I mean, the one thing, television, the bad thing about television to a certain degree is that it does, it does train a muscle a certain, and if it's, if it's, if it's not particularly inventive television, it sort of trains you to shoot a certain way and it kind of generic kind of get coverage. And sometimes that can kind of trickle into the movies in a way that isn't maybe oh, that great. Not good. Bad but habits. In general, <laughs> yeah, you got to kick the bad habits sometimes. But, you know, I think that nowadays television is on par with, as we know, like a lot of shows are on par with any good film. So, uh, you know, you can have those amazing experiences. Um, and also work on a scale that, at least for me, I haven't had a chance to work work on with visual effects and stunts and so on and so forth. So, uh, all right. So we got to talk about Gilroy. Tell me, tell me what it's like. You want to talk about somebody else writing your thing? Now you got Tony Gilroy writing uh, Beirut or with you. Yeah. You know, I mean, you is, can't get better than that. Yeah. I mean, was that intimidating? Is he collaborative? Is he like, all right, kid, you you know, don't fuck it up. I knew, I knew him because I we had another project earlier that we tried to get that he had written that I that he brought to me because he really loved Trans Siberian, and he said I'd love for you to look at this and so that we didn't get that one off the ground. But then they brought me Beirut, um, which he had written twenty years ago when he was a budding writer and didn't get 
it made for various reasons, different directors. I think Frankenheimer at one point was attached. I mean, this is what he tells me. And so it sat on the shelf gathering dust. Um, but then, you know, they brought it to me and I kind of looked at it and said with the producers that were attached and said, let's see if we can get this thing off the ground. And Tony was like thrilled. He's like, okay, good luck. Um, well, I, we tried and never got it off the ground before, but if you can get off the ground, good luck to you. <laughs> yeah, have at it. So we were able to get the financiers who had, had a plan for it. And, and then when John Hamm came on board, it was like, it started to come together and we figured out we can do it in a way that, you know, is affordable and so on and so forth. And, um, and so we went over to Morocco and, and made it and, um, and Tony was great. He was like, you know, he did rewrite on the script. We did polishes on the script because we had to change things, of course. And he reworked a few things for us. And this is while he was doing star Wars. Um, and so, uh, he's a great guy. He's a great writer, obviously. And, uh, and a real, like, just so smart. And so, and he's a director too, of course. So like, just, I, I always that he he know he, he knows what the the struggles are going to be. Right, you know? he knows what you and need. So he's trying to yeah. help. He sort of was trying to help. Right, he knew he knew what we would need, what we what we could get away with. But uh, but yeah, that movie was a challenge shooting over there, and it was a it was just a it was just a tough shoot because physically tough. Um, we were shooting over in in Tangier in the middle of August when it was like nineteen hundred degrees or something, and um, and so it was difficult, but. I enjoyed it too, because again, it was nothing like I had done before, but I took it, I looked at it this way. Cause I, I there was a movie, I don't know if you ever saw it, but I loved, and not, I was actually going to mention as one of the B-list ones, but was the year of living dangerously by Peter. Oh, Weir. Did you ever see that? I love With that movie. Are you kidding me? With the Vangelis score. Fucking love that. Hamilton guy. Occupation, journalist, Jakarta, first assignment as foreign correspondent. A reporter on the way in. You're an enemy here, Hamilton, like all Westerners. I felt sorry for you. That still is one of the most romantic, uh, sexy, yes, right? In a war I mean, just right. like a romance. And that was like fucking a, yeah. And like so. And so feeling and and, and sensual, yeah, and just dark sweaty and, and raining and like just and exotic, exotic, right. exotic. Exactly. That's kind of like that was sort of the that was like the template for this. When I when I read Beirut, I was like, this could be like a little bit like that. Like John Hamm is a little, even kind of looks like dude. I mean, he's our yeah, he's our like handsome leading man. Of and our like day. I, I kind of approached it like that. And by the way, Peter Weir is like one of my favorite all time directors. And so I like. And I actually gave it to uh, Rosamund Pike because she was interested in the role, but she wasn't sure. And I said, go see Year of Living Dangerously because that's the template. And she had never seen it. And she saw it and she she's like, texted I'm in. me back like, oh, my God, I love that movie. <laughs> totally get it. Yeah, yeah dude. dude. Yeah, she's amazing, too. I mean, she's a throwback to the old, like, the film actresses. Of, oh, she of, is. Of, she's such an old – right? she feels like an old soul. Yeah, yeah. just she like – doesn't feel like – I want to see her like heavily lit from above and like, you know, on a chaise lounge and <laughs> somewhere in Warner brothers circa 1932, yes. you know, oh, yes, I mean, she lot. just has that face and the talent and the, just the energy. It's great. She's like an old fashioned movie star, but, and of course, Shay Wiggum, the man. Shay Wiggum. Dude. I love him. I know actually I was, I wanted to cast him in session nine and he was going to do it, but then he couldn't for some reason. And we'd always sort of vaguely kept in touch. Yeah. And then I was like, oh, my God, this, this would be the perfect role for him. He's so funny. So great. Um, yeah, he's a great guy. It was a fun cast. It was, like, it, was, it was one of those casts where, like, at the end of the day, you'd gather in the hotel bar, everybody, and just, like, shoot the shit for, like, three hours and then go to set in the morning. It really felt like an old school. Because you are you're, – you're living the movie. You're in, you're all in a foreign land, the hotel bar, the expat community, right? Like, exactly. Yeah. It was a little bit of the uh, – trying to get into the spirit of the, the kind of like gnarliness of that world back then. Um, and I love doing period. I mean, that was eighties, but I've done other earlier period. I just, it, it's always fun. Cause it, you, you don't have the cell phones. You don't have to worry about all the bullshit technology getting in the way. Of the yeah. Storytelling. Right. And, um, 
And it's fun to kind of recreate a world like that. At least I'm familiar with the eighties. Like I totally knew what that world yeah. was like, because the hairstyles, the technology. Right. So it's fun doing period for sure. It's a kind of way to escape a little bit. Well, uh, I mean, is there anything else you'd like to talk about your work or should we, should we graduate to the, to the B list and talk about something that's influenced you? Is that, is there, is there any other projects, TV or film? I, the only thing I'd mention is my newest film, which is called the silent hour, which is um, a movie with Joel Kinnaman and Mark strong. And it's a kind of cop thriller about a cop played by Joel. Who's, who's going deaf who is put in a situation where he's trying, where he, he needs to uh, sort of protect this deaf woman who's being targeted by these bad guys. And it's like, it's like die hard, uh, but with the hearing impaired, um, it's all set in, in an apartment building in Boston. Right. And again, another character, you, you have the location. So maybe this is a stylistic element of a Brad Anderson movie, the, the, the location is character. Good point. I think that you've, I think you've hit on the theme of my career. It's like <laughs> each film is it, right. locations are the things that drive the, the stories inside yeah. the mind of Brad Anderson. Right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> A very location-driven person. I like the B places. Yeah, yeah. I, I look. I I think it's. I mean, if I may, like, make an observation. I, I I think it's because you did come from that indie background where you're you're always thinking about well, what resources are available and how can they become narrative tools? You know, uh, uh, under the larger rubric of a vision and a and a and a story, right? But you're always just looking for like, I mean. Here's my segue. You ready? And when we talk about Don't Look Now, Venice is definitely a character, right? I mean, without question, it's like a haunted house. Yeah, totally. And you couldn't make that. That story only exists because it's set in Venice. Yeah. Yeah, that movie. And the reason I picked it is because I saw that. I remember seeing when I was a kid on television and being like freaked out and, and just terrified and like amazed by it because of. Again, it's just spooky. It's a ghost story. It's kind of a, it's it's full of dread, and it definitely influenced like Session Nine. The ending of that movie is I don't want to talk about the ending because you got to no, see the no, movie, don't, the ending is don't so give it away. Yeah, appalling and horrific and disturbing, and that's kind of what we were aiming for in Session Nine. But but I love the film because it's uh, it's it's set in a world that's so specific. Venice. Venice off season. No, it's it's a very specific gray, abandoned, Old decaying gray, Venice. There's Venice. no one around. It's just our characters in this maze. I mean, it's really great. It is like a maze. And in some ways, like the, 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 the character of Venice, the city of Venice is, yeah, like if you want to read into it, is kind of like, you know, the, the metaphor for this guy played by Donald Sutherland, like going into his his mind as he starts to get more and more paranoid that his dead daughter might have come back to life. Yeah. So just let me, let me, let me, ba- let, let me back up a sec just for everybody. So we're talking about the B, the B side film is Nicholas rogues. Don't look now. It stars uh, Donald Sutherland and uh, Julie Christie at her like ridiculously hot best. And um, early I think it was 73. And uh, I would say, you know, of course, Tony was like, what? That's his A-side. I'm like, well, we'll have that debate. But I, I would say that Man to Fell to Earth would be his most well-known mainstream film, right? The, 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 his follow-up to this film yeah, with okay. uh, with David Bowie, just in terms of Bowie yeah. and like a wider distribution. I mean, obviously, Donald Sutherland yeah. was a huge yeah, star at yeah. the time. There's no way like this was a hit. I mean, this was a big movie for him. But I mean, just for my limited, like for the non-film yeah, filmist, I would think just man fell to her. They're like, oh, Bo- Bowie plays an alien, you know, and sort of the trippy, you know, visuals of that film. Yeah. But so, so uh, it was that era of cinema, which was this very Rosemary 
Rosemary's Baby energy in this film. You know, it was just that that dread cinema of late 60s, early 70s. Spooky. Spooky out the ass. Not a lot of technical pyromaniac fireworks, whatever. Just a sense of impending doom. Yeah, it's a, it's a psychological... Yeah, it's a psychological thriller, a psychological horror story, which to me are the movies that, and I think it informed my things that I like because I see similarities to that movie in like The Machinist or Session 9 or the movie I did for Netflix, Fractured. It's like it definitely is in that weird world of like getting into the headspace of a character who has become like paranoid and 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 not sure of like where the monster is. Is the monster out there or is the monster in here? Yeah, you know? yeah. And so, uh, and there's something, the other thing about that film that I loved is the visuals of it. It was shot and directed by, I think Nicholas Shrogue shot it. He was a cinematographer. He was actually David Lean's cinematographer. Yes, he did he's all done the a lot of huge movies. On, like, yeah. On, on, uh, on uh, you know, on, on uh, Lawrence of Arabia. And so he was a British, I don't know if he's still alive, but he's a British director, cinematographer. And there's something, the, the beauty of that film is just like the way it's shot, the way it's edited some beautiful sequences that create the notion of clairvoyance by how he cuts the images together. So mm-hmm. you get the sense that this character played by Donald Sutherland is, is having this sort of is, is, is foreseeing his own death. And, and it's, and it's just that combination of technique with tone to me is what makes that movie really stand out. And it's a little dated now. Like it has a lot of the zoom zooming in and like I some was, of this stuff is a little corny. I was thinking about the zooms. Yeah. I just, I, the, within the first sequence, you're just, yeah. they it's, loved it, man. They, well, it was new tech, right? It was sort of like, uh, it was new tech. Yeah. And it was, yeah Everybody it was wanted like, to play with it. Just like steady cams went nuts right. around, you know, 10 years later. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. For me now, it's like fucking color correction needs to stop. Enough with the fucking like teal and gold. Like we, you know what I mean? Like there's so many, it's yeah. the toys when the toys come out, everybody's got to play with them. And then you're like, come on, let's get out of this fucking, you know what I mean? Like I know, this, this whatever it is, but um, right. yeah. Uh, and, and also it's like, it, it, it's kind of what you do. I, I'm glad you, you know, you, you brought this film because all I w- was left with was, you know, there's, there's an incident at the beginning of the movie and someone drowns. Okay. So it's a, there's a water, everywhere in this film right so of course you got to go to venice i mean it's just you're surrounded by constantly reminded by this 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 thing that happens to these characters and they can't escape it and it's kind of like you said i mean yeah it's about grief yeah it's about grief it's about moving and guilt yeah (laughs) and guilt there you go the guilt and the grief Um, right the 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 couple things that are dated to me and not much uh I want to I want to talk to the person that decided that blood should be shot as like red paint before say like 82 right like it just someone decided that like real blood doesn't read right so it has to look like you know that Bonnie and Clyde paint that that you just see in those Yeah but uh, the thing is that's but that's a but that's a that's not a that's a choice Is that a choice I'm sure Is it like, Well because the move the color red is like the is like is the so predominant. The, yes, the it's all over. Red. Yes, the, the he's wearing the red mac. The, the, the mac the yeah. character he sees throughout is wearing the red. So it's like if you, I did my whole the way I got into film school is they asked you to write an essay on a movie, like a kind of why you love a film, and write a critical essay about a film. And I wrote it about Don't Look Now and about how red, how the director used red as a way to tell his story the yeah. color red yeah and so rogue used red and he needed that blood to have the same quality as the red of the the jacket that she's wearing so like the choices i think if you look if you probably did a color analysis of that film you'd find that the red of the blood matches the red of all the other things in the movie it's like it's probably a choice right, right the temperature and he's a he's a dp as you said he's a dp so he's probably got it down to the exact color temperature yeah yeah right. yeah that's a good point that's definitely and also with the bleakness of venice uh you know the the stone is gray the sky is gray the 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 water is gray and just those those pops of red like the uh southern wears the red 
uh, scarf, right? So you, you see these little yeah. these shocks of red in exactly. this like gray, like you said, almost like a grief landscape right. of just, you know, they're in a haze of, 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 of not feeling quite processing the guilt of losing a loved one. But yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, it, it, it's also the, um, you know, one of the films my, my actually my NYU film professor brought was Freaks. You know, Todd Browning's B side. He he said Freaks right instead of like Dracula. Yeah, and I was trying yeah. to figure out why that movie freaked me out so much because it's not. I mean, especially it's dated, of course. But you realize that uh, we have an innate in our DNA a fear of other in the sense of like there before go the grace go I right so in this case you know these people were the bearded right. lady and then such and so and uh in this film the blind woman you know we're just there's just a, a human oh, yeah. quality where they're blind and then they gave her the extra like watery what I cut what I was thinking was oh she's got watery eyes right so he's going with the water thing all the way through yeah, yeah, they gave yeah. her those watery kind of like yeah, cataracty yeah. looking eyes but um yeah. the notion that uh and even I won't give away the ending but even uh you know a, a physical uh, the 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 killer uh, is revealed, and it has a, another sort of yeah. physicality is, issue. Yeah. And right. what what does that do to us? Well, uh, you know, we're we're meant to fear illness and otherness, and oh God, you know, I mean, like tribes in the old days, like yeah. somebody gets born blind, they're going to get tossed off the latest, you know, the nearest cliff because you know it might it might not be safe for them right. in the in the tribes that moving around things like that so there's something supernatural yeah. about and even other tribes would then take a blind person and say oh you're a seer right you're our second sight uh, uh shaman right. or whatever well, so that's what it is in the movie yeah so in I, this case she's the you know she sees but she doesn't see right yeah small cast can i mean obviously they're using the whole city but it just feels like tight I think it's sort of like a pattern that I that he did in that film, small cast, one location, a very singular spooky premise that I kind of glommed onto in in, in many of my films, you know. Again, just to wrap it all up, <laughs> bring it all yeah. back around. No, and that's um, great. I that's think what that you movie, want. <laughs> uh, maybe it's maybe subconsciously inspired me as an independent filmmaker. It's like you, you inadvertently gave us the, the, the you gave us the key to the to the formula and that's how you built your your code yeah <laughs> that's the cipher of the <laughs> and i remember when i first saw the film i remember seeing it like we were talking in the very beginning about how one sees movies now like back then there was like they'd show movies on television and you would stumble the upon them the you'd right? discover movies of the week yeah yeah and i remember stumbling upon don't look now like at three in the morning and it was at my dad's laying on the couch watching clicking through and and there was this weird movie and watching it on a shitty little television, probably a little tube television with shitty resolution, but still being like fucking freaked out by it. And like it lived with me and to the extent that I'm talking about it now. So like the fact that like these movies back that you watch when you're younger can inform you as a filmmaker, it makes sense. Um, and when you can identify what those movies are, you can do that. You can kind of be like, well, this is maybe why I, do this in my movies or it's interesting, you know? Um, but that's one of them for sure that I remember really. Yeah. I remember, uh, there's a funny clip of, um, uh, inside the actor's studio. I think Spielberg was on and, and the guy was talking about close encounters, which, you know, coincidentally was Tony's B side, um, Spielberg's, you know, close encounters of the third kind. Great movie. And they're, t uh, yeah, it's, that's it's, a B side. See, I call that his A side, but <laughs> so, uh, we had that debate and, and we sort of came out on the same side, which was um, to the kids today. A lot of like the point of the B side is to turn people on to some like rare, uh, rarer shit. And I, I would say right. to our generation, we saw that in the theater that struck us. I, I saw it maybe two, three times in the theater, but right. for the, for the average yeah, yeah. younger person, it's ET, it's Raider, you know, the, the guy's, I mean, talk about a filmography. Yeah, yeah, so, um, yeah, it's done to me. Yes. Yeah, and so up. James Lipton is saying, oh, and, you know, Close Encounters, it, it's about divorce and makes you sort of examine your childhood and da da da. da and Spielberg kind of stopped and he's like, 
I never thought of that. And you're like, oh shit. (laughs) So there is something unconscious. As much as directors must control, and we're talking about Nicholas Rogue, must control every variable, this color red in this frame at this point for this long, and then we're going to cut and then we're going to match. And what I noticed about in this film is the matching of the edits. Like here's a face of a gargoyle to a face of another thing. And he's constantly planning out those transitions. yeah. Yeah. So you have to, and both be controlled and kind of conscious and unconscious or subconscious, right? So that even you are like, oh yeah, I never realized this film sort of like defines my whole uh, sort of aesthetic uh, underpinnings in these 15 ways, you know? I think someone put it interestingly, like when you watch a movie, I don't know if it's true now when you watch something on television or digitally, but in the old days when it was 24 frames per second of film school rolling through a projector. Yeah, like, half if not more maybe it's even like something like 70 percent of what you're looking at on the screen is black is darkness yeah it's persistence of vision yeah it's persistence of vision which brings it together and makes it seem like a solid image but but if you really analyzed it optically like half of what you're watching is darkness and i just say that because there's something interesting about the idea that like as a filmmaker you go to those mysterious places and you're not even sure why and and you you have these things that you are in the light that you know about and you you calculate and you purposely put out there and you design like how you're gonna you want the audience to react but then there's the whole other side of you as a filmmaker person putting images on screen that that you're not conscious of it just happens naturally it's the darker part of your creative side like that's something that every filmmaker any artist frankly any person ultimately has right you don't you can't we all have things we do and say and things we create that we're not sure why we do them or what they mean or but we do it anyhow you know and whether it's something that was inspired by our father when we were a kid or whether it's something that what for whatever reason it's trauma we're working out we all have our own like subconscious creative approach that goes hand in hand with the conscious side and motivation and to use that. What's my motivation? Someone watches a movie. They say like to you, like, this is how I saw your movie. And you're like, your eyes open up. You're like, Holy shit. I never thought about it. Right. 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 Yeah. Wow. And that, and that's the exciting part. And I think it goes back to what we said is, is filmmaking a, a film can't exist unless an eye, uh, unless the photons of it hit, a retina, right? And so the black is the audience filling in the gaps that the film has left in order to see, well, what happens next? Well, what happens next? And as long as you have them asking what happens next, you can go anywhere, right? Right. Yeah, that's that's it. Well, look, man, I mean, this is, this, this is, thank you so much. I mean, I I think, I think we said it all. I appreciate you taking the time, man. (laughs) Yeah. This has really been a good one. Um, it's a hoot, but you know, it all came from, it was COVID the last fucking calamity to hit our business. You know, we're just Uh, sitting around like talk. I mean, this is what we do. This is what Tony and I do. I mean, we'll talk about, you know, current events for five minutes and then we'll go right back to like, yeah, I saw heat again for the four millionth time. I never noticed that one shot where he da 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 da, you know, like we instantly just fall back on, on, on film nerding out, you know? So that's all it's supposed to be. Right. Yeah. I mean, we can get pretentious, but it's, just, and it's great. It's so fun talking yeah. about like just chatting, you know, I mean, this is what, this is what it's all about. You know, it's very gratifying. Yeah, man. So I really appreciate it. Yeah. This was a lot of fun. We done did it. Thank you, Brad. That was a lot of fun. I'm um, actually, Brad just sent me a, a screening invite to his latest film, which I'm very excited about called the silent hour with Joel Kinnaman and Mark strong. Uh, please look for it in the next coming months. I believe he's zeroing in on some distribution right now, uh, which is very exciting. And also coming soon, uh, he'll be starting work on Twilight of the Dead. Mr. Anderson has been um, selected from on high to continue the tradition of Mr. George Romero's Night of the Living Dead. I think he's going to bring us a unique interesting intellectual juicy fun uh interpretation of the zombie universe so good luck with that brad thanks for coming along and playing that was a lot of fun i hope you guys enjoyed it i certainly did 
please, before you do anything, before you go back to folding your laundry, before you go back to cleaning your Italian sniper rifles, um, please subscribe, rate, and review the show wherever you get your podcasts. Whatever you're listening to right now, stop what you're doing, poke your little index finger at it until you find a heart or a thumbs up or a smiley face or whatever the fuck it is that tells the machine you enjoyed this episode, you want more of this dopamine flavoring, which is quite of a French vanilla we go for, and uh, you want it now and you want it to keep coming and we all like to keep coming and the way you keep coming hardest is when you hit that like rate review subscribe um keep on coming button and we'll keep on coming to you every week and the algorithm will see that you like coming and we'll be coming for more coming every week but you gotta tell the machine me likey okay i can't do that for you this is a choice this is a moment don't fail and while you're considering your place in the larger universe you can follow us at how i got greenlit at instagram tiktok and x ribbed for her pleasure uh and of course email us at how i got greenlit at gmail.com visit us at how i got greenlit.com for the archive and as always, I'm Alex Collegian, your host. Thank you for listening to How I Got Greenlit. Have a great week. We'll see you soon. Porn, Satan, drugs, therapy. It's not just the list of what I'm up to this weekend. I'm comedian Kiki Anderson, and those are just a handful of the taboo topics I've poked and prodded at so far on my podcast, Indecent, the show where we peel at the wallpaper of polite society. Each episode digs into the dark underbelly of our culture to dissect the things we aren't allowed to talk about around the dinner table, featuring conversations with comedians, activists, journalists, academics. They all help me figure out the who, what, and why behind what is and isn't acceptable behavior. Indecent with Kiki Anderson, where NSFW meets LMAO. Mwah. Next Chapter Podcasts.